Please join me in prayer. Spirit of the living God, open our ears and our hearts for what you have for us this day. Amen. In all my years as pastor, I have never had anyone say to me, oh good, it's Advent, I just love the story of John the Baptist. John is the first one in our Advent series on the waiting figures of Advent. And every gospel gives us some pieces of his story. So in order to more fully understand John, it behooves us to gather together all the information we have on him. The opening verses of the third chapter of Luke offer a litany of all those who are in power when John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is called to his prophetic task. So Luke's gospel helps us to paint a picture of leadership that would easily make the FBI most wanted list. Each leader was notorious for their cruelties, their treacheries, and their callous disregard for others. Pilate was renowned for playing both ends against the middle. Herod was insanely paranoid and had his own sons and one of his wives executed. The religious leaders of the day weren't much better. Annas, the high priest, traded in integrity for jobs for members of his family. The Roman bosses appointed his five sons and son-in-law Caiaphas to the temple priesthood. In terms of politics, religion, and economics, almost any first century Palestinian would have agreed it was the worst of times. One might have expected a sign to be placed near the temple with the words, due to the current financial crisis, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off. It appeared that God had been silent for centuries. There had been no prophecy in Israel for 400 years, not since the prophet Micah's words. There was no challenge to the continuance of the Roman rule. It was believed that prophecy would arise when the Messiah was about to come. So Israel was waiting, waiting for the one who might be that authentic prophet. And it's into this setting that John the Baptist came. Into this setting, he emerges out of the wilderness. His access to power did not come from Roman roots. John did not buy into the Gap fashion look or REI. His style was somewhere between tie-dyed and the go-to dress of those who annually attend the country fair outside of Eugene. His diet was locusts and honey. It was clear from the beginning that there was a strong call upon his life. And that call demanded that he be outside the institutions of his day. And he was mandated to be a truth teller. John was the message. There was a sense of authority and authenticity that captivated the throngs that came to listen and like all prophets, he said the tough stuff. John did not offer sentimental platitudes. He demanded 
and expected action from his listeners. He focused much of his message on the ruling body. As Frederick Beekner has put it, prophets put words to things until their teeth rattled. And it is that teeth rattling oration that I stiffen at. I viscerally feel myself pulling back from John's scathing words to the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers, honest but not politically astute. I suspect he wasn't invited to many social gatherings, not many hosts feature locusts on the dinner menu. John was so plain and blunt a preacher of righteousness that he was bound to run into trouble. However, his followers believed in his truth-telling. They heard his words, which were much more about social justice than religious ceremony, and it felt authentic. He promoted sharing from excess. He challenged the tax collectors to be fair and honest. They were widely known for their corruption and greed. And he addressed the soldiers warning them about their greed, about positions of power. He makes it clear that he is the preparer, contrasting his mission with the one who will come. He sees baptism as a way to demonstrate a change of heart. Repent isn't a word that we deal with very often. John had no trouble with it. He encouraged it as a way to turn around, to return to God. He promoted a way of life that wasn't just about belief, but demanded action, including generosity and just living. As I was preparing for this sermon, I kept asking myself, who have been the prophets in my life? Who has nudged me, pushed me? Who has helped to reframe some of my belief and actions? Who has pushed me in ways that have not always been comfortable? I thought about Randy Ellison, who was part of the last church where I was interim in Ashland, Oregon. He gave me a copy of his book, Boys Don't Tell, Ending the Silence of Abuse. It's not that I hadn't heard many abuse stories. It was his teeth-rattling approach as he pushed churches to change their systems and become as safe as possible. Randy had been abused by a trusted minister and mentor of his church, and his call was to take on religious church systems. He was brutally honest. He promoted safety videos that he wanted every leader to experience on a regular basis. Were his mandates extreme? Many, I'm sure, felt they were. But when a prophetic voice is pushing an institution, it's amazing how systems can shift. Being a protector of children can be lonely. Sharing abuse stories is not popular. Years ago, I remember driving to a hotel in the Bay Area for breakfast with Renita Weems, who I knew was from Princeton Theological Seminary. She had been invited to speak to a group of women leaders. She ran the meeting very differently than any speaker I had encountered. 
She pushed for the gathered to tell their stories of growing up years. As a white woman, I was in the minority gathered around tables with women of color. The most common story began, I lived behind the big house. And I still remember the pain of hearing, I played with Patty from the big house unless her white friends were visiting and then I wasn't allowed to play with her. The gift of Renita Weems was the ability to enable the pain of racism to be named and felt within women of faith gatherings. She became ordained amidst the jeers and smirks of family and friends and male clergy. Years later, she became the first African-American woman to earn a PhD in Old Testament studies. She chose the path of writing as a way to have a prophetic voice heard rather than endure the battle of seeking to be allowed to be a church pastor. Her prophetic voice has opened the doors for conversation that promotes listening to one another. And she has pushed hard, hard to widen the tent to include different kinds of people. And those conversations are hard work. Her voice has been used to push and prod churches to become more relevant. Every one of her books and speaking has pushed me. She shoved me to see some of my own blindness towards racism. And it is rarely comfortable to have one's eyes open and deal with the internal shifts that need to be made. The latest prophetic voice in my life has been Sarah Augustine, a Pueblo author of The Land Is Not Empty. For weeks, we read the book together in our class downstairs and on Zoom. And each week, I got a bit more squirmy as I was pushed and prodded by her writings. Sarah's book unpacked the harm of the doctrine of discovery a set of laws rooted in the 15th century that gave Christian governments the moral and legal right to seize lands they discovered, despite the fact that those lands were being populated by indigenous peoples. A painful part of this awakening for me is that those laws were legitimized by the church and justified by a misreading of scripture. I'm sure I'm not alone in my discomfort as I wrestle with her truth-telling, and I suspect that her Seattle Mennonite Church have had some teeth-rattling kinds of discussions as she has sought to open the eyes of her own Mennonite faith community and their role in farming new land. Her book brought about a new level of discussion at our family's Thanksgiving. I've been pondering our 100th anniversary, which we will we'll be celebrating next year. And as much as I appreciate reviews of past eras and as much as I enjoy the stories of various leaders, and as much as I enjoy seeing old pictures and hear memories, what matters the most is what John the Baptist was all about. How are we living out our faith now?
Yes, I was nervous about the staff interview with the anti-racism consulting team who are reviewing our church leaders, bulletins, website, budget, and theological statements. But when we risk having our eyes open, when we risk hearing truth-telling, we are pushed to make changes. We will be asked to look at our own lives and our own church's lives as we live out our call. Each week we have printed in our bulletin that we are striving to take seriously the challenge of the prophet Jeremiah to seek the peace of the city. Seeking the peace is about authenticity, inclusion, and being willing to risk opening our eyes and hearts to places that may need some systemic changes. We are called to deplore the sins of intolerance, bigotry, greed, and neglect. We're called to deal with the ageism that comes with both ends of the spectrum. But what does all of this have to do with the dailiness of our lives? I have a set of notes tucked away in my box of treasures that I suspect most parents have somewhere in a basement or the bottom of a closet. It's not the usual set of notes. They are little scraps of paper written by our oldest son, John, when he was seven. They were spelled phonetically by a stressed second grader. Nobody loves me. I'm running away. And the scraps go on. His four-year-old brother, Matt, had been in the hospital for a week in traction following his broken femur. And Ken and I had spent most of our time juggling to be with him. John had spent a good part of the week being shuffled between grandma's house and friends. Most parents know the agony of dealing with the trauma of one child and standing somewhat helplessly by as a sibling or siblings get shortchanged during a crisis situation. The scraps of paper represented one crying in the wilderness. Voices in the wilderness, no matter what age, are never easy to deal with. They are painful, they can be irritating, they are unsettling, and they often create fear within the family system. I saved those scraps because they are memories of a time in life that we made it through. It was probably only two months on the calendar, but it felt like two years. Sometimes the emotional toll of an event takes much longer to heal. Most Sundays, we offer prayers for someone either in the community or someone with a connection outside of our community who is in some kind of waiting mode, waiting for a biopsy report, waiting to see if the chemotherapy did what it was supposed to do, waiting to see if acceptance was granted for the number one college choice, waiting to see if the job offer was made. There are times when we are sure that we must make a transition and we do not know what the new will look like let alone when it will arrive. There are times when we feel the darkness as such a heavy weight 
that it is hard to believe that there is light. And even if we still believe there is light, we sometimes fear that the light doesn't have the strength to penetrate the darkness. I doubt that anyone has ever been envious of John the Baptist's life. He defied all the systems of his world. The religious world had no slot in which to place him to make sense out of his actions. John spent most of his life telling of the coming of the new one without knowing fully what that new one would be like. What form will Portland Mennonite change during this Advent? We are in the in-between time. We are in the waiting. We don't know when this pandemic will be considered over. We don't know when we can fully, safely gather indoors as a whole community. We don't know who the search committee will choose as the next pastor of community life and outreach. And right now, neither do they. We don't know what will emerge out of our work on anti-racism assessment. We are claiming the reality that the greening power of God often comes after a season of waiting in the dark. In the mystery of the Advent season, let us reach out to one another for support as we wait with hope. Let us claim the words of the prophet Isaiah, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. <laughs>